Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Bill Fladeris. And I'm Karen Stiller. And today the podcast digs into what is a really tough topic, and that is medical assistance in dying. Here at Faith Today, we wanted to look at this topic from a theological perspective and just sort of dig in and understand how someone, you know, deeply opposed to euthanasia roots that in a well thought out theology. So Bill, you bravely led this interview. Tell us who you're talking to and how it went. Yeah, thanks, Karen. It was a challenging interview, but also an insightful interview, I think. We'll see what our listeners say. I spoke with Ephraim Radner, who is a professor emeritus of historical theology at Wycliffe College in Toronto. Um, So he's an Anglican cleric who's worked in a bunch of different pastoral settings and then also done this kind of academic work. And he also spoke quite frankly about some suicide experiences that happened in his extended family and in his nuclear family. And so there's a personal reason for him that has led him on this journey to try to make sense of what does the Bible teach? What should Christians believe and do around issues related to euthanasia, assisted dying, and other you know related medical procedures? So he's someone with a lot of experience, both academic and personal, and he brings those things quite frankly to bear on this issue. And he has strong opinions about it for sure. So one thing we've experienced as editors of Faith Today, every now and then we'll get a letter from a reader who feels really strongly, I think, in favor of medical assistance in dying and is always a, a reminder to us that even within the church, opinion on this issue is not always what we might assume it to be. And I've read read over the transcript of this interview you did, and I, I know Ephraim is, is really strong, and he gives a really sound theological, you know, background for why Christians, he feels, should be fiercely, I would say, against euthanasia. How do you think, how do you think listeners will respond to him? Is it going to challenge some of our maybe sometimes shaky thinking about this? Oh, such a great question. I, I guess we'll have to wait and hear the response from our readers. For me, I felt that it challenged me to rethink some things. I think it depends a little bit on the attitude that someone goes into a conversation like this with. If we go in sort of defensive, and and I think some people will after this introduction, um, (laughs) there's a limited maybe amount of change that we can go through. But if we go in kind of trying to be open-minded and open-hearted and ask the spirit to lead our thoughts, who knows where that can go. And so I think one of the roles of faith today is to encourage us to talk together about different understandings. And so I really feel this is a valuable episode, no matter what position a listener might come to it from. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's hear it. So Ephraim, thank you for joining us. You're a professor emeritus of historical theology at Wycliffe College in Toronto. So I'm hoping you can help us with giving us some historical and theological perspective on the issue of legalized euthanasia. In Canada, the government has legalized what it calls medical assistance in dying. They've opened it up to people who aren't necessarily dying. Starting in March 2024, someone whose body is perfectly healthy, but who is suffering from mental illness, will be allowed to legally request and receive death with the assistance of a medical professional. Let's look at how Christians think about different aspects of this situation. Christians don't all agree about the importance of 
loving the God of the Bible, only something like 6% of Canadians are evangelical affiliates. But I think most Canadians have a sense that loving your neighbor is a good thing. With euthanasia, this is where I think disagreement occurs. A lot of people from evangelical backgrounds seem to think loving care is always extending life and trying to improve the quality of life. But there are others, including some Christians, who argue helping someone end their life can be a loving thing to do. Can you help us, Ephraim, and help our listeners try to make sense of these two different approaches? Yeah, this is a, a big challenge in our culture. And I think one of the problems is that the culture itself has changed and has pulled apart the whole character of death from what it means to be a human being. In other words, for many of us, and this includes Christians as well, death is its own thing. It's a distinct element that is sort of added on to our existence, and mostly negatively. And I think that's just simply wrong, number one, and it's wrong also in terms of the whole tradition of how Christians have understood what it means to exist as a creature. So one of the things I, I want to start with in answering this challenging question is to try to describe how dying is actually not its own distinct thing, but is simply a part of existing. Um, you, you mentioned that part of the new regime, governmentally, civilly, legislatively, is that now it's going to permit euthanasia or assisted dying for people who are not dying, who are perfectly healthy. I want to question that way of putting it. All of us are dying. That's the first thing to understand. We cannot escape death. That's part of who we are. But it's not just a sort of foreign alien aspect that is somehow intruding into life. Death is one part of a single coin, the first part of which is birth. Death and birth go together. They are actually really the same thing, in a sense, with respect to ordering our existence. And this becomes very important when we try to understand this whole issue of I should have the right to decide what I want to do with my dying. The fact of the matter is that death and birth represent two aspects of what it means to be created without our say-so. We are born without asking for it. God gives it to us, and we die without asking for it. God takes our life. It doesn't matter whether we're 10 or 30 or 80 or 100. It's a pretty short life one way or the other. But mortality goes with, if you will, natality. They're two sides of the same coin. Our existence is an utter gift from God. It's given without our asking for it. It's taken without our asking for it. So the real issue is that our existence is all gift. It's not in our hands, one way or the other. And the big intrusion is not that we die. The big intrusion into our existence is that we take life into our own hands and take it away either from others, killing, or from ourselves, which is suicide. And I want to be clear that medical assistance in dying is suicide or murder. It's both. <laughs> it's not something different. 
So I want to go to this question of how mortality and natality go together, culturally speaking. It's no accident that in a culture where death is in our own hands, we've increasingly seen birth as in our own hands as well, that is to say coming into existence, such that we can decide the whole sort of scope of what it means to come to be. It's no accident that in a culture of euthanasia, of suicide and of killing, we're also engaged in suppressing birth in one way or another. I'm not just talking about abortion and conception. I'm talking about the ultimate end to that set of practices, which is that we don't want any children at all. Fewer and fewer people are having children. You're getting a lot of folks in, in younger generations who are saying, we don't want children. We don't want to bring children into this world, and so on and so forth. So I want to start with this notion that mortality and natality go together. They represent the sort of shape of what it means to be created by God, to be given an existence. Now, of course, only Christians, not only Christians, but you, you have to believe in God as creator for any of this to make sense. And it, you mentioned many people sort of, including Christians, seem to accept medical assistance and die. I'm just gonna call it suicide, okay? Many Christians are accepting suicide, legal suicide, legitimate suicide, civilly sanctioned suicide, that's in part because, in fact, we have a very thin notion of being created by God from the beginning to the end. So let's go to this notion of natality as being a whole, not two distinct things. You know, see, there's this sense that death is bad, birth is good. That was the original thing, life, abundance, death is bad, so let's get rid of it. In fact, the two things have culturally blurred together so that it, now natality is bad. Birthing is not so good either. We shouldn't kid ourselves about what happens when we permit killing. They go together because they are ultimately a gift. A gift. That's what existence is. And when we say no to that gift, we are saying no to everything that's part of our life, not just to suffering. We'll come back to suffering and pain, which seems to have been the motive permitting suicide. Right. But bodies are part of the whole issue. Civilly sanctioned, let alone religiously sanctioned, suicide goes with a culture that allows us to change our bodies. Whether we're male or female, it's all part of one package. I'm convinced of that. Whether it's transgenderism or eating disorders and bodily dysphorias and so on and so forth, the notion that what we are given is something that we don't want is the ultimate form of blasphemy. That is to say, it's a way of saying, in my very being, I reject the fact that I am a gift of God, that I am a gift. All right, let's go to this question then of dying. Is dying really something that we would permit under certain circumstances? The only way to understand who we are as a gift in this natality, mortality matrix, is to look at who the fulfilled gift is. That is Jesus Christ. That is God's own gift of himself. So to understand what it means to be a filled, fulfilled human being, the perfect human being, is to look at him. There are lots of ways of doing this, but let's just go to the end of his life, to the dying part, if you will. 
there's that place in the garden where he looks at the fact that he is going to die, die in a certain way, the passion, the cross. He says, let, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then he says, but not my will, but thy will be done. As we pray right. in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. That cup, of course, is a certain kind of dying. I'll come to what kind of dying that is. But he also then says to his disciples, can you drink this cup? And they say, yes, well, you will drink it. So his cup is our cup. What is that cup? That cup is to be delivered up to death, to be delivered by God, to God. Deliverance. Now, the suicide is not deliverance. Suicide is the taking of my own life. Of course, killing is the taking of another life. The cup of Jesus is the death in which he is delivered to, according to God's will. That is, that is what it means to be a human being, to be delivered unto death, whatever that is. Now, that may be an illness, what we call a terminal illness. It has to be said that taken together, all illness is terminal. We all die. All of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of our flesh lead to our death. It's all terminal. And the notion that medicine is for a cure, cure to cancer, the cure to heart disease, is also false. All medicine is palliative. Unless you're a transhumanist and you think that medicine can give us immortality, all medicine is palliative. It's extending and putting off for a little bit life or making life bearable in the face of pain. So like the poets say, we're all dying from the moment that we're born sort of thing. Sure. I mean, and that, that's grim. The other thing to be said is death is also a form of living our births. It's not separate from existence. It's integral to existence. So, you know, we're eating and we're laughing and we're singing and we're working and we're dying. That's part of what it means to be a creature. So if we accept that our birth is a gift from God, the life that God gives us involves birth and the middle part of life and also the death. It's all part of one package is what you're saying. It's one continuous integrated thing. Now, it's true. Uh, and this, is, this is where things get sort of historically complicated in terms of devotion and attitudes and theology and the history of the church. <laughs> Obviously, death has often been viewed as the result of sin, and so it's not good. It's evil. It's the devil. It's something that's imposed on us from the outside and so on. I should say that that is not a universal view amongst Christians. Augustine, among many Christians, mm -hmm. understood our created nature to be mortal from the start. It was God's will that we would learn obedience and through obedience be able to live with him forever. But not actually because our nature was immortal from the start. We'd, if you, if you will, we would grow into morta immortality through obedient mortality. That got messed up in the fall. And here we come to this great motivation for suicide, which is pain. Whether it's physical pain, or mental or you know, emotional pain, which, according to the law in Canada, becomes intolerable, so-called, whatever that means. And therefore, once intolerable, we take our existence into our own hands 
and we kill ourselves or we have someone kill us. But, you know, suffering, let's go to this question of suffering. Why wouldn't we want to kill somebody who is in physical pain? Yeah, mercy killing, right? It's the phrase that... It should, yeah, it should be said in the Christian tradition, by and large, after the initial, I mean, as far as we can tell, and very quickly, suicide was viewed as illegitimate before God. We don't have laws about it until the early Middle Ages that are on the books and so on. But we can already look at uh, early Christians, and it's clear that suicide, although it's understood as being something somebody might want, it's rejected as something that a Christian would embrace. However, if you will, understandable its motivation might be. And as I said, by the early Middle Ages, it becomes, in canon law, illegitimate. By the way, in the Church of England, in Anglicanism, uh, in the Church of England, it's all the way to 2017, it remains canon law that a suicide is not buried in a churchyard and given a church service. Fascinating. That late. We're talking about only six years ago. Right. Even the Catholic Church changed this in maybe, I think, 1983. Still quite late in terms of human history. So suicide was always viewed as wrong. Now, now why? You know, there's been a lot of historical research about this. There were lots of penalties attached to suicide. We'll stick to the English-speaking world. You'd bury the suicide at the crossroads. You'd put a stake through their heart and so on. It sounds awful. Or you hang them at a crossroads for people to see. In fact, this was rarely done, as it turns out. There's been some research about this. These laws were rarely put into place. Occasionally they were. They were rarely put into place because also part of canon law was that it didn't apply to people who killed themselves in, quote, unsound mind in a fit of madness. All right? Right, right. So a person who willfully killed themselves, that was no good. A person who lost their mind and whatever that means, killed themselves in a fit of unsound madness mind, that was different. And you could make exceptions for that. In fact, most people tried to fudge that. And pastors and magistrates and so on, because there were other issues, they wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to unsoundness of mind. And so the penalties were never put in place. But why the penalties at all? They were aimed at public example. <laughs> it's that simple. We did not want to encourage people to think that taking their deaths and thus their existences into their own hands was permissible because that sent, if you will, the wrong message. I want to press very clearly, and we've seen this already in Canada, that the whole permission of suicide whether for the terminally ill and tolerably painful physically, is indeed a slippery slope. It's an example issue. It's a modeling and formation issue. Once you begin this, there's no going back. That's what's happened in Canada. First, it's the elderly and incurable cancers and horrible pain. Next, it's, the, well, gee, it's, it's intolerable. Intolerable how? Mentally intolerable. It's depression. It's anorexia. It's this and that. Then it's not just old people, it's younger people. And more and more, and now we're at the place where the law has changed. It's not yet put into effect, I gather, but it will be unless something has changed, that a 13-year-old 
can be an intolerable emotional pain asked for and be granted by the state through its medical apparatus the permission to kill themselves with assistance. Modeling is the whole point. And the issue of then of suffering in illness to the end, with only palliative care given, is also then an issue of modeling. What does it mean for us to offer images of older people suffering to their deaths and accepting not to kill themselves, but to die as best they can? Dying is a gift, just as much as being born is a gift. So the question is, for a Christian, is what do I offer? What do I offer young people? I am so convinced of this. You're going to come to some personal questions, and I'll divulge certain things in my own life. Older people offer the example of suffering to younger people without killing themselves, with courage, with offering to God their suffering with joining Jesus in his suffering, they offer that as a gift to younger people. Take that away, and the whole gift of the Christian discipleship is thrown into the gutter. I'm convinced of that. And I want to, everything I want to say, I want to say extremely, because I think it's that important. It's not a question of not having compassion on those who kill themselves, but we don't allow them to do that. We try to prevent it. We don't sanction it, right, as a society because it's sending the wrong message. I, I hear what you're saying there. The deepest, most profound wrong message is not just an error. It's the message that God has not created us and life is not his. That's the message. So I, let me just sum up then a little bit. I hear you saying, first of all, the example of Jesus in the garden, where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done, is an example for all of humanity that we are not just ourselves, we're not just our own, but that we live in service to the one who created us. And so by killing ourselves or by committing murder, we are rejecting that. And the other thing I hear you saying is that there is a web or there's a set of interconnections that exist between people such that if we send the wrong model or we sanction the wrong idea about life and death, then that has ripple effects through a whole society. And you have, uh, instead of people aspiring to follow uh, good examples, you have people making choices that are in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's right. And again, I wanna, I wanna press this to the extreme. We are a culture that is literally committing suicide. Not just because we are allowing elderly, terminally ill, as we describe them, people to die and put an end to their pain, but because in doing so, we are actually moving the dial down to birth itself. We no longer want people. We no longer want children. Yeah, and I understand what you're saying there. And I think, so what you're implying is that there's a bit of selfishness there, that our part of our responsibility in life is also to continue life. And so a rejection to have children because it's too inconvenient or whatever is in some way a rejection of that gift. Well, inconvenient and more fearful. Right. I don't uh, minimize the worries people have about raising children in this world you know, in the face of war and climate change and so on and so forth. But let's not kid ourselves about what it meant in all of human history. 
Again, back to my earlier thing about seeing death as something separate that's sort of imposed as an alien force of pain onto human existence. Birth was always a form of suffering as well. Mothers, one-fifth to a third of mothers died in childbirth basically until around 1900, till they figured out that washing hands as doctors or midwives uh, made a difference. That one thing pushed the dial up of the lifespan, which doubled in the last 125 years, more than anything else. So there was that. Infants suffered. They suffered disease or painful deaths in their first few weeks or years or whatever. We know all that. But even more than that, any parent knows this. Any child, if you just think about it, and somebody who has grown up as a human being knows it, having children and growing up and being a parent and raising and living, it, it's filled with terrible burdens of suffering emotionally, not just in toil, but in worry and in sorrow. And so life is filled with suffering. Birth is filled with suffering. It's not like there's wonderful birth, which if only we could get rid of dying, would make the world better. So when people say, I don't want to bring a child into a world like this, well, what world were you thinking of 100 years ago, a 1,000 years ago? People have been having children and giving thanks to God and bearing the mixture of sorrow and joy that's a part of it in the most profound ways ever since God created human beings, as it were. We're not in a different place. The only reason people think we're in a different place is because somehow we've gotten into a situation in our culture where suffering is no longer itself a part of the gift of life, in our view. So I do think that's a big issue. And maybe the, also the isolation that a lot of people have, that suffering is not seen in the context of being cared for, right? Some of us don't have someone to care for us, or we feel that caring is too much of a burden on other people and that sort of thing, right? Excellent point, because of course, none of us live, well, some of us do more or less, but in reality, none of us live as isolated individuals. We come from parents, we are raised with other people, including siblings and so on and so forth. But somehow we got into this place, as you said, where often, you know, at, at the times of weakness, whether it's in the middle of life, but certainly towards the end of life, we're alone. And we're not bound to the people that we helped and that now are there to help us. And that kind of mutual care is the place where, I think you're implying rightly, suffering finds its meaning. Now, of course, at the very end of life, we are delivered up, as Jesus says, commended to God. And we don't drag everybody with us. Although there's this weird thing now with medical assistance and dying where we are dragging people with us in this weird way. I want to get somebody to kill me. I mean, we're, we're soliciting, engaging others into our own enterprise of self-death. What could be worse? Instead of helping people and engaging and soliciting their participation in our witness of suffering with Christ. One of the things I hear you saying, then, is kind of a radical anti-individualism. I'm thinking of a letter that we received from a reader not that long ago at Faith Today magazine. Let me just read you a bit from it, because I think this helps illustrate the point. This person wrote in and said, Spiritual care is an essential component of end-of-life care, and it involves being supportive of a patient exercising their own moral agency. So again, that letting the individual choose 
what's right for them sort of thing. That's my paraphrase. Uh, and then the letter goes on to say, not adding pressures with language that only one option is acceptable to God. In my view, that is spiritual abuse. And that's the end of the quote. So this person obviously is taking the, has accepted this idea of individualism, that we can control our own destiny. And what I hear you saying is that there's something unchristian about that or incorrect about that, that we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves in that kind of isolated way. Am I pointing it in the right direction of what you would say? You, you are. You are. Bullseye. I mean, the notion of human autonomous agency in the face of the gift of our life or existence is a contradiction in terms. As I said, birth and death are two sides of the same coin of divine gifting that our existence is. You know, Jesus didn't commit suicide. People have said, oh, well, he went to the cross. You know, he knew what was going to happen. It was a form of suicide. This is not true. At every point along the way, it was possible for repentance, if you will, to take place whether it was on the part of those who arrested him or those who tried him or those who finally killed him. He did not kill himself. He allowed himself, it is true, to be delivered up. That, of course, martyrdom. And we've had this whole issue of whether martyrdom is really suicide. And the early church made clear, you are not to sort of put yourself in a position where you are deliberately getting yourself killed. That would be suicide. And there's not even any acceleration, like Jesus has offered opportunities to dull the pain, or perhaps there were opportunities to shorten the span of the suffering, but Jesus never chose those actions, right? So I do see that that makes sense, what you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's a mystery. It is a mystery. Why would suffering be a part of this gift? I think that's where the revolt, the rebellion of the human will against the gift really does have some kind of comprehensible fuel. Why are you telling me it's a gift when it's filled with such pain? And again, we can have compassion on that, rightly so. I think there are two sides to this, which are are not possible to pull apart. One is that I think there's a kind of suffering that is simply bound up with the essence of gifting especially the gift of self. Self-expenditure is a kind, has a cost to it, has a cost to it. But then there's the fall and there's sin, and that's mixed up with the purity of gifting. So that, if you will, what was once a smooth, and I'm using an analogy, gift, now becomes jagged and grating and tears at us. We can't pull them apart in our existence. We can't say, oh, this suffering is good and this suffering is evil. I mean, we can when we make choices ethically about making people suffer, and so we have to do that. But I don't think suffering is the issue. Harm is the issue. Harm is the issue, not suffering itself in our ethical decision-making. We are, it's the mystery of the Christian life, called into a place where we join with the suffering of the Son of God. And in that, we see light, and we see the fullness of what that gift is. We can't do it from the outside. I'm not in a position to say why it is that pain is something we are asked to live through, other than by following Christ, and if so following him to see it. And it goes back. It's lodged at the heart of Scripture. 
But Job is the, is the main place where, if you will, it's crystallized. Naked I came into the world. Naked I go out of the world. Blessed, you know, blessed be God, he says. By the way, and I've looked at this at length, so I've seen how important Christians, especially in the early modern era, where the whole issue of suicide once again started being raised in the face of expanded cultural of self-autonomy and choice, the book of Job was fascinating to Christians. It wasn't rejected. It was expanded. I think the longest commentary of Calvin is on the book of Job. That was over a thousand pages. And Christians were deeply sympathetic with his suffering and with his wife's <laughs> saying, why did you just curse God and die. They understood. They also rejected it finally. That somehow Job was allowed to live into the profound mystery of God's creation of his own existence, which included somehow suffering. And in living into it fully to seeing who God is in a kind of astonishing light and glory. You can't do that from the outside. You can only do that from the inside, which is why, of course, older people need to help younger people understand that that's a possibility, an invitation, a gift itself, rather than saying, you know, this is too much, kill me. I think it's abrogation of the deepest Christian responsibility for older people to accept their own termination. I hate to say that. I have... I have several good friends who have participated in, because of their association with, in terms of spouses or family members, terrible, painful terminal illnesses, have accepted their assisted suicide. I don't want to judge them. I do want to say they're wrong. I'm not judging their moral motivations and the reasons they're doing that, but I am judging the rightness of their choice in the end. Um, and... I can't go with them. I would oppose it. I do not understand how clergy of whatever ilk can stand and participate in an assisted suicide to be present. I, I don't understand it to go and say prayers. Clergy have no business blessing the death by suicide or intentional killing by the civil medical authorities. They can be compassionate but they cannot be participatory in it. It's a contradiction of the Christian calling as far as I understand it. So how about if we expand this then into a multicultural society that we are in Canada? I think you've made a very strong case for this Christian perspective and the theology behind it and stuff like that. But we're living in a country where so few people are Christians. What do we as Christians do then if we hold to these kind of beliefs then? Is it a matter, again, of, of sort of witnessing and, like you just said, trying to explain your, one's own position while still being compassionate to, to those around us who may think differently or may, as, may not accept the whole concept that you have of, that you've laid out for us about life being a gift from God? Well, we'll start with judgment begins with churches, the Christian household. We at least have to be clear that as Christians, suicide and assisting others, killing them, is unacceptable for the Christian. We have to teach that. We have to start with clarity about 
all the things we've just been talking about, which, which it looks like we're starting from almost the ground up in many cases in churches. We have to talk about it. We have to teach about it. Pastors have to be educated about it and so on. Then you're in a society which is, as you said, is, is multicultural, different views, and everybody's not a Christian. What do we do about this? We have to actively seek to oppose legislation that expands it and roll it back. I'm not a big political activist, but there's some things you do have to stand against. Uh, and this is one of them. But we'd also have to make the case that it's for the good of all people. We're not just doing this because we believe that this is what the Bible teaches. But in the public sphere, we also have to say, we think this is for the good of all people. And so I think you've made your case theologically, but I think we, maybe there's some work to do in explaining those kind of concepts to people outside of a Christian framework, if that's possible. Do you think that's an option? Um, I'm not sure. I am not sure how to do it outside of a Christian framework. I am not sure that the notion life as a gift of God that is ordered by God's own creative, not just omnipotence, but love in the form that it is, which is this natality, mortality matrix, I'm not sure that that is comprehensible outside of faith. You know, I'm not saying don't make an attempt at some kind of apologetic witness but it's not a slam dunk rationally, you know, any more than the existence of God as our creator is a slam dunk rationally. Do I want to call this culture a nihilistic culture? In some aspects, yes. And so do, what does one do in the face of nihilism? One witnesses one's own life. One witnesses one's own love. One witnesses one's own willingness to die and to suffer as creatures of God who are delivered unto God according to his will and with the love and mutual support of one's community. You know, I think that is convincing in the end according to God's grace. You said, well, you know, it's good for society independent of our belief in the Bible. I can't say that. There is no independence of the truth of scriptures because that is the truth of the cosmos. So I can't pull those apart. We do our best to try to convince people. The folks I talked about who have participated in made or what have you, equivalent in the U.S., in certain states, are either not Christian at all or not tutored Christians. And trying to talk about this has been difficult for me, very difficult for me. It's true. It isn't just a question of let's teach society about uh, medical, the truth about medical uh, assistance in dying, we have to be able to teach it as an integral part of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. I don't see how we can pull those apart. By the same token, we can't say it's not an integral part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I can't do that. This is just sort of one other ethical issue we disagree about. I'm convinced of this side, but you're convinced of that side. Lives are at stake in this. Lives are at stake in this. So I can't say you take go your way and I'll go my way on this. I can't do that with respect to the church's teaching. I mean, I'm not in a position in any case to excommunicate Christians who support medical assistance in dying. But I am in a position to say, you're wrong, and I'm not going to participate in this, and I'm going to pose everything you say about it. You have misunderstood the gospel.
We are in a place where Christians will have to part ways with one another over this, if that's what's going to happen. I don't think we're there yet, in part because I don't think people thought it through. Maybe another way I could ask you to help us is, is by thinking about your breadth of experience in terms of how these things might be applied in different cultures. So you've worked in Burundi and Haiti and in different parts of the United States. As a pastor, does this kind of struggle work out the same way in all those places? Does Yeah, well, okay. So, I mean, it's helpful to bring that up because what I've just said makes it sound like in, let's stick to Canada. Made in Canada is an engulfing moral horror uh, to which all other ethical decisions are subordinated. Of course, that's not true. You can have places where suicide is rejected by it, the culture, civil culture, or the Christian and or the Christian culture, and other horrible things happen. Right. Um, we just talked about some of them. And that would be true in parts. Of, there, there are many cultures where suicide is rejected, although there are many, I mean, non-Christian cultures or non-Western cultures, there are many where it's accepted. So in a way, it's sort of independent of, you might think, independent of, of sort of a total worldview. You know, some worldviews can accept suicide, others can reject it right. and have other things and you build them up in, with different pieces of the right. ethical Legos. And I think to some extent that's true, but that's only true because human society itself, back to what I was saying earlier, is indeed fallen. And the church is, is indeed in many ways uh, corrupt. So I, I wouldn't, you know, Burundi, whatever, people don't encourage suicide. It, it, it certainly happens. But in the same way as it happened in the Western Middle Ages, you know, people know it happens. <laughs> they try to yep. cover it up. Um, they try to be compassionate about it and so on. At the same time, you can kill people, you know. So it's not it's not as if not accepting suicide means you don't kill people. Um, yeah. Of course you do. It happens all the time, all, all over human history. The Christian challenge is this integrated understanding of the gift of our creatureliness from God, which is given perfected form, uh, fulfilled, saved form, however you want to put it, in Jesus Christ. And we're not there yet. That's our imperative and our calling as Christians, whatever culture we're in, whatever culture. That's a very compelling statement for us to be thinking about the example of Jesus and seeking to follow that example and recognizing that there are so many levels at which we don't follow that example or that we could follow that example better. Also in this area of euthanasia and understanding life as a gift. So let me just say thank you for joining me. Are there a few last words that you'd like to share with our listeners that you could encourage them? I want to be a little confessional and hopefully in the end uh, encouraging as a result because I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I'm just some kind of extremist who has a doctrinaire view about the nature of life and it doesn't matter what anybody goes through. Okay. Um, I don't know, except in very limited personal ways, what intolerable physical pain is like. I've seen it. So I admit that. I do know what intolerable emotional pain is like where maid is going. My mother committed suicide when I was an older teenager. A sister of mine committed suicide. When I was 20, after my mother's death, I made an attempt on my own life. I admit it with a certain amount of shame, but also what, I, what else I'm going to do, honesty, with this. 
And I could go on. I don't want to go on because I don't want to violate any other confidences. I know all about that. And I have learned. I have, you know, it's been hard. It's been hard to know how to live in a world where the people I love the most, trust the most, which come to me and shape me the most, have at some point decided and discovered that their lives were not worth it any longer. Not worth it. Not just that they were ready to die, but not worth living to the extent they could. And I've had to fight against that example just in order to survive. And by the grace of God, I've learned. I've learned to be compassionate. I don't know. I don't want to overblow it, but I, I think I have. Uh, for the reasons people find life intolerable. I've seen a lot in my pastorate and not just in my own personal experience. But I've learned how worth it life is. It's beautiful in all of its depth and darkness. The light is greater because of who God is who has given me this life and shown me what this life truly is and offered a way into it in Jesus Christ. I know that. And I do want people listening to understand that this is not just some kind of conceptual theological edifice that I have insisted upon. It's a living habitation which is filled with grace. You know, I want people to be able to, I want my children, I want my students, I want the people I live with in church and meet in the supermarket to understand that as well. That's what I want to say. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.